We are in lesson 24 of the book of Romans. We're in the middle of chapter 8. And Paul has moved from talking about, moved to talking about the current condition of the world in which we live and the hope that we have and the entire creation has and longs for. We spoke about how the entire creation has been subjected to decay, to the temporary. Paul calls it futility, but with a little study, we found that the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word there means vapor. And just as vapor vanishes, so too creation has been subject to the temporary by God. He did that because of the sin that entered the world through Adam. So I want to begin this week reading from verse 18 just for continuity. I know we covered these verses last week, but... Verse 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the, revi- for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also would be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so we spoke last week about how the creation longs for the sons of God to be revealed because at that same time the messianic age will come and the earth will be restored and Messiah will rule. And at that time the sons of God will care for the creation as God cares for the creation. It will be like Eden when man cared and cultivated the garden and loved the creation as did its creator. And so all of this we covered last week, and now we'll continue on to verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So he equates this anxious longing of the creation with the groaning of childbirth. He calls it birth pains. And birth pains was a common theme in the first century for the time leading up to the coming of the Messiah. And we can see that it was understood and a common theme even within this verse because he says, for we know. In other words, this was something that everyone knew. And we can find traditions like this within the Talmud. Sanhedrin 98b says, Ula said, Let him, the Messiah, come, but let me not see him. And Rabbah said, likewise, let him come, but let me not see him. Our Joseph said, let him come, and may I be found worthy of sitting in the shadow of the ass's saddle. And Abiyah inquired of Rabbah, what is your reason for not wishing to see him? Shall we say because of the birth pangs preceding the advent of the Messiah? In the commentary on this passage in 98b, it says this, These troubles are generally referred to as birth pangs, being the travail which precedes the birth of a new era. You know, and if we look through history, it would seem that each era does suffer birth pains. I mean, if we look at the time before Abraham, we see the flood. And even during that time, we see Sodom and Gomorrah. If we look at the time before the giving of the Torah, we see Israel's slavery. 
And we certainly can see the troubles at, uh, at the first coming of the Messiah. But I'm going to say now that nothing is going to compare to the final birth pangs of the Messiah. The fact is, according to Paul, creation has been in the throes of birth pain since the beginning. So birth pains was a common theme. The Lord revealed much to Paul. But Yeshua said of the time of his coming, no man knew but only the Father. And with that in mind, I want to say that I really don't believe that Paul thought there was going to be another 2,000 years before the return of the Messiah. And if we look at every generation since, every generation since thought the Messiah would come in their generation. And as we think of our generation, we think the Messiah is coming in our generation. And there's no reason to think that Paul thought a whole lot different. He may not have thought that it was coming in his generation, but I don't really think that he imagined 2,000 years either. So we look, he looked around him and he saw the paganism in the world, he saw the persecution of the Jewish people and thought that the time of Messiah was near. Maybe not in his time, but still near. And the reason being, he could see the birth pangs around him. So in this letter to the Romans, he says, the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The problem is, even in our generation, the worst of the birth pangs have not truly yet come. The Talmud says this of the birth pangs. Actually, the Mishnah says this but I took it from the Talmud. It says, In the footsteps of the Messiah, insolence will increase and honor will dwindle. The government will turn to heresy and there will be none to offer them reproof. The wisdom of the learned will generate, fears of sin will be despised, and the truth will be lacking. Youths will put old men to shame and the old will stand up in the presence of the young. A son will revile his father. A daughter will rise against her mother a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be members of his own household. The face of the generation will be like the face of a dog. A son will not feel shame, ashamed before his father, so upon whom it is for us to rely upon our father who is in heaven. And so, like I said, the reason this is all in caps is it's a quote of, from the Mishnah, Sota 9.15, and the Talmud, whenever it quotes the Mishnah, puts it in, in caps. But we can certainly see that uh, as all of the things that are happening before our eyes, so the rabbis were not too wrong about the birth pangs of Messiah because we can see these things coming to be right now. Right? And if we look back at the time of Paul, we can see it was bad, but indeed yet even in his time, the worst was yet to come. Even in his day. And so also we need to keep in mind, I want you to keep in mind as we read on that the birth pangs are associated with groaning because this term is going to come up again in a few verses. So Paul sees the troubles in the world around him as birth pangs of the Messiah and certainly he's correct as we see the whole creation has been groaning for a long time. The pains have been going on for a long time. Verse 23 says, And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. And notice that it says, 
not only this, but we ourselves. He's separating us from the rest of creation because we are the sons of God through our adoption. And we have this hope within us, and it's more than a hope because the leading of the Spirit, we have a certainty within us of the advent of Messiah. Even with the hope and the certainty of his arrival, though, he tells us that we groan within ourselves for the longing for the complete redemption of our bodies and the return of the king. And he says we groan inwardly, having the first fruits of the Spirit. This term first fruits is used in Scripture of the firstlings of the herds and the first fruits of the crops. And very soon we're going to come to, uh, about a month away, we're going to come to the first fruits of the barley harvest, when the first fruits of the barley would be offered to God. But this term, first fruits, is also offered, uh, spoken of elsewhere as a 50th of the dough that which, which was offered to God. Well, here it's used of receiving the first fruits of the spirits, the first fruits of the spirits. So we may take it to mean that this is a, this first fruits that we have received is a foretaste of the fullness of the spirit that is yet to come at the advent of Messiah. A foretaste of our relationship with God a foretaste of the gifts of the Spirit that Paul will speak of later in the book of Romans. Verse 24 says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already has? I want to look at this word uh, saved here. This is one of my favorite words in Scripture. It should be one of yours too, but we need to get a a full uh, idea of what it means. So I put the definition up here. To rescue from danger or destruction. To save a suffering one from perishing. One suffering from disease. To make well, to heal, to restore to health. To deliver from the penalties of the messianic judgment. And so sozo, the word for saved means salvation, healing, suffering from disease. Healing from suffering from disease as well as being justified and being a part of the messianic deliverance. Many of us, when we were saved, were delivered from disease, addiction, and coupled with our having a change of heart from one that's controlled by the flesh to one who desires to follow Yeshua. All of this is to the result of our having received the first fruits of the Spirit made possible by Yeshua. But it is just a foretaste of the deliverance that's coming. And I like to to think of it in the terms of a 50th. It's a 50th of what God has in store for those who love him. I was one who received the healing from addiction and disease. And now as I get a little older, I look forward to the day for the complete redemption of my body. Because uh, getting old is no fun, as some of you know. Amen? Amen. Can I get an amen on that one? You see, within the good news is healing for today, but there's also a promise of even better things to come, and that's for what we groan inwardly for. For we hope, and that is what faith is all about. We're told faith is having confidence in what is unseen. Now, the Greek word for hope here actually is stronger than our word hope, and I put it up here for you. It means confidence, faith, 
or hope. We just don't have hope, but we confidently long for what is coming because as Paul said in verse 16, the Spirit of God testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So you can call it hope, but it really is a confident, we're confidently waiting for the return of Messiah and for the redemption of our bodies. We know that it's coming. And in verse 25, he says, but if we hope for what, is, for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Notice what he says. He says, with perseverance we wait. You know, Paul knows from Scripture that true faith requires perseverance. If we have faith in the promises of God, we're going to persevere, even if those promises aren't realized in our lifetime. I spoke of how I believe most others throughout history have thought that Messiah would return in their lifetime. And I think some of the historical writings would prove that. But as we know, it didn't happen. And yet all of those people persevered in their faith. The promises given to Abraham, the promises given to David and others were never realized in their lifetime either, but they persevered in their faith. And so we learn... And as Paul knows, that perseverance is really the truest sign of true faith. Paul says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps us. So what does he mean in the same way? Well, it certainly can't be referring back to hope and faith. So we must assume that it refers back to verse 23 where it says, even within ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption of sons in the redemption of our bodies. So the Spirit helps us in our groaning and our waiting and our longing for the return of Messiah. You know, we pray for and we long for the redemption of our bodies in the advent of the Messiah. The problem is, who really knows the mind of God or has a grasp on the plan of God to the degree that we really know what to pray for in our present time or in our present day? Or on a daily basis. And so Paul says the Spirit helps us in that weakness as the Spirit intercedes for us. You know, there's a phenomenon that we can find in Scripture and one that you may hear uh, many intercessors speak of because they're familiar with. It's called, by those who have experienced it, groaning in the Spirit or travail in the Spirit or even just weeping in the Spirit. It's not a language, it's just a groaning and a sadness from within. Now I know this will be controversial, and for those of you who have experienced it, will say amen, and those who haven't will look at me a little skeptically, so let's go to scripture. If we go to the book of Isaiah, we're going to see Isaiah is in prayer, and he's having a vision. And within that vision, the experience and the experience of having the vision, he describes what's happening to him in the natural. Because of seeing the things within the plan of God, he speaks of himself as a woman in labor. And so we may find 
that this is much like the groaning that Paul is speaking of. Listen to what it says. Isaiah 21, beginning with verse 2. A dire vision has been shown to me. The traitor betrays. The looter loots. Elam, attack. Midia, lay siege. I will bring an end to all the groaning she caused. At this, my body is racked with pain. Pain sees me like those of a woman in labor. I'm staggered by what I hear. I'm bewildered by what I see. My heart falter. Fear makes me tremble. The twilight I long for has become a horror to me. Now this is the prophet. And and it's his response over a prophecy against Babylon. He's in pain over what he sees is going to happen. The burden has come upon him over what's going to happen. And we see that he's describing it as pains, like the groanings of childbirth. And I don't think he's using a metaphor here or hyperbole. I think he's actually experiencing these things. He gets a glimpse of what's within the plan of God and it staggers him, it bewilders him, it leaves him in a heap on the floor groaning like a woman in labor. Do women groan in labor? I think so. I know my wife did. Well, imagine what a glimpse of the birth pangs of Messiah would do to you. Or the sadness that God has over all of that would do to you. Now, Paul said the Spirit helps us. Let's get an idea of what the Spirit prays for. Let's go to chapter 42 of Isaiah. And we see the burden of the Lord here. Chapter 42, verse 14 says, For a long time I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp and pant. And this is the Lord describing himself. And what is the description? Like a woman in childbirth. This is the Lord who is like a woman in childbirth, gasping and panting. Metaphorically, of course. But he uses the same metaphor that Paul uses. And what is a mere metaphor for God is often a reality for us. Can you imagine the burden the Lord has for what is about to transpire in the world today? Or what is transpiring in the world today? I don't think that we can. I don't think that we even have a clue as how to pray for such thing. And so the Spirit of God aids us and intercedes for us. And if we, like Isaiah get a glimpse of that, it will cause us to groan inwardly and it will cause us to weep and it will cause us to travail. Now, if we go to Jeremiah, he's recorded for us the lament of the Lord over the destruction of his people. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 18, it says, Your own conduct and actions have brought this upon you and this is your punishment. How bitter it is, how it pierces my heart. Oh, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart, my heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent, for I've heard the sound of the trumpet and the battle cry. The destruction that has come upon the people and the anguish and agony that it caused God. And again, I doubt that we can begin to imagine the agony of the heart of God that he feels as the times lead up to the true birth pangs of the Messiah. I doubt that we can begin to imagine how to pray for the end of the age and the revealing of the sons of God that we so long for. And so the Spirit aids us 
for, uh, in our prayer for that event. Now, I want to say that we can find this burden, this travail, this anguish in our Messianic writings as well. In the next few weeks, we're going to begin chapter 9, and we're beginning then to the true purpose of the letter. But Paul begins the true purpose of the letter with this. I'm telling the truth in Messiah. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I don't think Paul is using a metaphor here. So you can imagine Paul in his prayer closet with unceasing anguish in his heart for his people Israel. And what he must have looked like as he experienced that anguish of his heart, of heart. Well, as he said, the Spirit helped him in his weakness, and so he was able to not only get through the prayer, but also write down the plan of God for us in the next few chapters. But don't think that those words didn't come with some weeping and some groaning over what was about to happen. The fact is, this whole section on groaning and the Spirit aiding us in what we ought to pray for is leading up to this very statement, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9. It's leading up to this statement and lending credibility to what he's about to say of his unceasing anguish in his heart for the people of Israel. He's telling us that that anguish is in part the work of the Holy Spirit and how God has the same anguish in his heart. Imagine, just imagine for a moment, the heartache Yeshua must feel for his people Israel, for his brothers Israel, the Jewish people. One other place we can look at is 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4. It says, For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. This groaning in the spirit, this weeping and travailing in the spirit is a product of the Lord sharing his burden with you and is aiding you in your praying for the things that you are unable to pray for without his aid. And so if you're one of those who have experienced this in intercession, you can now say amen. Amen. And if you're one of those who hasn't, please keep an open mind because I can tell you that not everyone will experience this. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Just as many of you will never prophesy or preach a message. But that doesn't mean there aren't prophets or preachers who do. So, think of it this way. Think of it this way. If God can speak to you, and if you can hear clearly as he defines his word for you, as he reassures you of your salvation, as he comforts you, then can he not also lay part of his burden for the world upon you? And if he does that, would it not be a crushing burden for you? And one that would cause you to weep and to groan inwardly? Think of what people like Isaiah and Jeremiah, who's called the weeping prophet because of the things he saw. Think of John as God showed him the book of Revelation and the vision of Revelation. Okay, so enough of that. Let's continue. But because we spent so much time there, I'm going to read verses 26 and 28 again for continuity before we move on to verse 29. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And I read this out of the NS, uh, uh, out of uh, the NASB. And he uses the word and here to connect it to the preceding verses. That's why I read them again. And he says, again, he says, we know. This is something that he's sure everyone in Rome knows and understands. But the problem for us uh, in understanding this comes from, uh, there's two different readings here. If you look at the Textus Receptus from which the King James, Tyndale's, and Young's literal are taken, among others, it reads this way. And we have known that, those lo- that to those loving God all things work together for good and to those who are called according to purpose. The NSAB and the NIV read again this way. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. The King James and other translations that were taken from the Textus Receptus, leave off the first occurrence of the word God out of the text. And it's all based on one ancient manuscript. And you think it might be a small thing, but this is what it does. It tends to leave the impression that God is not actively involved in the events of man. Which goes totally against what Paul just said. He said that the Spirit is actively involved in our prayers He actively intercedes for us. And he said earlier that the Spirit guides us and directs us. So not to give credit to God for causing all things to work together for good really doesn't compute for me. And it doesn't agree with the rest of the letter. And yet, because some think that God does not take an active role in the world today, we have this variant reading. Now we know that God can take the most dreadful sin that you have committed in your life And he can forgive you, turning that dreadful act into good through your testimony of what God has done in your life. And that is in itself proof positive that God and only God works all things together for our good. He also says to those who are called according to purpose, if you read the King James. But the NSAB and the others add his purpose. Okay, that in it, um, by adding the word his, again, they're putting it, this is God's purpose. And we should know that all things are for God's purposes. They're not for our purpose. It's not for any other purpose, but it's for God's purpose. And Proverbs 16, 4 tells us that. It says, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. So yes, it's God who works out everything for his purpose and God does take an active role in the events of the world. And I believe that Paul includes this statement again because in chapter 9 he's about to get to the purpose of the letter and identify the purpose of God, purposes of God in blinding Israel and his calling of the Gentiles and his purposes in light of the whole of Israel. So he continues in verse 29 with this. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. I want you to see that he links five things together here. He links them together. First, he foreknew. Second, he predestined to conform to the image of his son. Third, he predestined those he called. Fourth, those he called, he justified. And fifth, those he justified, he glorified. They're all linked together. And the link must remain unbroken because you remove a link and the other statements don't stand. There are some of these that are pretty hard to understand, particularly the first two. It says, he foreknew, he predestined. And the reason it's hard, it would seem like man's free will has been taken out of the equation. Right? That we don't have the ability to choose. And yet Paul made it clear that man's free will does enter in and we do have the ability to choose. Granted, he also said, It made it clear that man's more apt to choose evil than good, but choose nonetheless. Remember the lesson of the golden calf. In a mere 40 days, after turning down the hearing of the voice of God, for just hearing the commands of God through Moses, they break the very first command that God gave them through Moses and make a God of gold. And so we learn In the lesson of the golden calf, we learned that left to our own devices, we are really bent toward sin. And we also learn without the divine influence of God directly in our lives, without the ability to hear him, we're prone to evil and not good. It's not that God foreknew or predestined in the sense that he decided at creation, I'm going to save Stan and I'm going to crush these people. But it's because he's eternal. He knew in advance who's going to turn and who's not going to turn. He knows those who would turn toward him. And so those he foreknew, he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, to have relationship with Yeshua. And the reason for this conforming to the pattern of Messiah is that that Messiah would be the firstborn. He would be preeminent, the one who first conformed to the will of the Father. And because of the preeminence, he would be an example and an aid for the rest who would follow. And finally, he says, your calling, this wondrous work that God has done is, and is still doing in each of us, he did to bring glory to his Son. For those he foreknew and decided to remake in the image of his son for his son's glory. Those he called were called by God, chosen by him to receive salvation through Yeshua. Those he called, he justified. Or we could say he gave right standing with him that we might have relationship with him. And because of our relationship with the Messiah, those people would also be glorified with him. Not only are these links linked together, but it takes us full circle in the plan of God. He's telling us, if we have ears to hear, that it's all about Messiah Yeshua. 
that all he does is to bring glory to Yeshua. The whole of the five verbs in that verse. He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified are all the work, the action of God, and these actions of God were all to bring glory to the Messiah Yeshua. They are God answering the prayer of Yeshua. Remember we looked at the prayer of Yeshua last week? It's not on the screen this week, but I'm going to read it for you again. In John chapter 17, verse 4 and 5, Yeshua prays this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory of which I had with you before the world was. All of this to bring glory to Yeshua. And let's give Yeshua the glory that he deserves in our worship. Amen?